This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. My guest today is an old, old friend of mine. His name is Rick Doblin. He founded the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, known as MAPS, back in the mid-1980s, and he's been fighting the good fight on psychedelics reform and legalization for all those years. He's best known for the role he's played in trying to get the FDA to approve the drug MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, for treatment of PTSD. And that seems like it's going to happen in the next couple of years. But Rick's also played a pivotal, a really historical role in the psychedelics renaissance, both leading up to it and what's going on now. So Rick, thanks ever so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Ethan, it's such a pleasure. Glad to be home here talking with you. 
Okay, well, well, so am I. And, and I, for our listeners, I should let you know that there's a special on Netflix that was put together by Michael Pollan called Changing Your Mind based upon his book. It's a four-part series. And one of the episodes, I think, focuses on Rick and Matt. So we thought this would be a really good time to have Rick on to join us. So, uh, Rick, is there anything you want to tell the audience right to begin with about this special and, and what you think is going to be in there uh, that they yeah. should really pick up on? Yeah. Well, first off, I like to say that, you know, we don't really do science. We do political science, meaning that we have to be very political about, you know, what drug we use, what patients we do that and keep in, you know, sense of the larger political dynamics. And so a lot of it is symbolic communication. So one of the things that I'm so excited about for the Netflix documentary is that there's two minutes of the documentary that's going to be about a police officer from the Boston area who's also a psychotherapist. And he's been through our training program for therapists because he's interested in giving MDMA to police officers with PTSD. And he's had uh, people that he's um, in his department uh, and departments that he knows of have committed suicide, police officers. And so he's, he's very compassionate. And I've gotten to meet his police chief and also um, the head of the police chief's union for Massachusetts and others. And we were able to persuade his police chief, Sarko Gregarian is the police officer's name, that he should be permitted to volunteer to receive MDMA in a protocol that we have, FDA, DEA approved protocol, to give MDMA to therapists as part of their training. And so he did get that permission. And there's a documentary team following his journey from you know, police officer psychotherapist to police officer psychedelic psychotherapist. And two minutes of him taking MDMA and him commenting on it was filmed and is going to be used in the Netflix documentary. So I think the message that we're trying to send to people is the opposite of this is, you know, psychedelics for hippies. And, you know, I've often thought about the police as the predators and myself as the prey and other drug uh-huh. users as the prey. But in this case, you know, I've sort of wised up about that. And and I think if it weren't for the drug war, you know, we would all be uh, you know, much more grateful for the police. And so I think this uh, communications about how the MDMA-assisted therapy is really for everybody. It's for um, police officers. It's for prisoners. It's for prison guards. Um, it's for perpetrators. It's for victims. You know, I, I think. Well, that well Rick, this, let's go. I mean, when you're talking yeah. about the cops, I mean, there's also been this whole connection with the military, right? I mean, I yeah. just saw there's something popped up just uh, just recently, in fact, that the former head of the Australian Defense Forces, a fellow named Chris Barry, has said he hopes this moves forward in Australia. Yeah. And I think you've had your own contacts with the Pentagon and with the military, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, in Israel and also in Jordan. So maybe just, you know, uh, say a little more about that. Yeah. Well, uh, also, the uh, head of the military in England is very interested in MDMA and General Nick Carter, and he's been very much uh, supportive of MDMA. But for me also, it has involved this kind of healing process, the same as working with police officers, working with the military. And, you know, for this idea of political science, you know, we have such support in America for the military that I felt it was absolutely essential that we have bipartisan support for what we're trying to do. And so we've gotten support from some very right-leaning philanthropists, Rebecca Mercer being the most right-leaning of them, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica and 
Breitbart and Parler. <laughs> well, you know, Rick, I want to get into that for a second, but just stick with the military leadership, yeah. Dan. I mean, so okay. you've had contacts with the Pentagon, you've had contacts yeah. with yeah. Israeli, Jordanian military. I mean, how far have they gone? What have been the most successful? Just to give you a quick overview, we've treated over 60 veterans with PTSD, but we have yet to treat a single active duty soldier. And so that is the kind of crossover that we're anticipating as the next step in this integration of psychedelic psychotherapy into society will be actually working with um, active duty soldiers. And we are working with uh, Dr. Bob Kaufman, who is a senior emeritus psychiatrist at Walter Reed, uh, mm -hmm. the military hospital there. And, and we're thinking that over the next couple of months, we might actually be able to um, enroll active duty soldiers as well. Mm -hmm. And we do have support from uh, Bob Parsons, who's a, a major philanthropist who himself had PTSD from Vietnam. He started GoDaddy. He's Daddy. the guy who started uh, GoDaddy? Yeah. Yeah. And so he has actually donated funds to a treatment facility in Rockville, Maryland, not far from Walter Reed, specifically for active duty soldiers. But he, here's where I learned about the hierarchies in the military. This was now over 10 years ago, and there was a psychiatrist, Rob McClay, at the San Diego Naval Medical Center, and he had a two-week inpatient program for Navy SEALs and Marines with PTSD, and this was the last step before they would either get enough relief from their PTSD symptoms that they could go back to duty, or they would be transferred to the VA as disabled from PTSD. And so he wanted to work with us on MDMA. And what he said was that uh, he wasn't uh, high enough in the hierarchy, that he needed to get the support of the admiral in the facility. And I said, okay, that sounds reasonable. So then he gets the support of the admiral. And then he says, well, the admiral likes this idea, but he's not high enough in the hierarchy. We need to go to the Pentagon. And I just kept thinking as I was going in the Pentagon that, um, you know, in the 60s, the Yippies had tried to levitate the Pentagon <laughs> as part of their yeah. Vietnam War protests. And um, needless to say, the Pentagon did not levitate. But here we were all these uh, decades later being invited into the Pentagon to talk about psychedelics. The Yippies, the Yippies couldn't levitate it, but we could go in and talk about helping the veterans with PTSD. And the meeting went great. And then they said that they weren't high enough in the hierarchy that we had to go up to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs in charge of all health for all the militaries of all the different divisions. And they said we needed to go on to the Hill, meaning we needed to get political support as well. So that's when we started engaging um, Senator Jay Rockefeller. And he also had a series of meetings with the Eric Shinseki and, and several uh, secretaries of the VA. And this all culminated in a meeting in 2014, with the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs and his staff, and the National Center for PTSD of the VA, the Executive Director and the Assistant Director of that, and a variety of other people from uh, the, the Navy, what they said was that there was a concern about working with active duty soldiers. And the concern was that if they were to permit us to work with active duty soldiers at that time, they were worried that the need for treatment for PTSD was so great that that would encourage active duty soldiers to try to self-medicate and uh -huh. that they would get the, quote, wrong message, which we've heard so much in drug policy. You know, my, my view of that was, well, 
if the need is so great, you know, you should immediately start research. But the, the decision was made that we should start with veterans. And one of the people that was at that meeting was uh, Dr. John Crystal, who's head of the neuroscience division of National uh, Center for PTSD at Yale. And there was a woman named Candace Monson, who used to be the head of women's health at the Boston VA. And she had developed a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. And conjoint means couples or dyads. And what that means is that in this dyad, both of them are brought into the therapy, but one of them has PTSD and it affects the relationship they're, they're in, but the other person doesn't have PTSD. Mm-hmm. And they felt that if you could do this sort of couples therapy or dyads, that that might be more effective than just treating the individual patient with PTSD. And so since they had heard about the love drug and the hug drug as ecstasy, their idea was that this would be a good first step, that we could try to blend MDMA with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy, that we had to pay for it, the VA would not pay for it, they wouldn't refer any veterans to the study, and the study would take place with academic affiliations, but not inside the VA, and that we would not be permitted at that time to do anything with active duty soldiers. And so we thought any place we can start is a great idea. And so that began our first effort with VA-affiliated therapists working outside of the VA. Mm-hmm. And the results were phenomenal. It was better than anything they'd ever seen before, both in the reduction of PTSD symptoms in the person with PTSD and also in the strength of the relationships. And so this was just so exciting. We did six dyads. And we have now built on that and have funded a study that's going to be with 60 dyads in Toronto, 30 that get cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy and 30 get cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy with MDMA. And we're also starting studies inside the San Diego VA and eventually also inside the Phoenix VA to blend MDMA with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. It's safe to say that at this point, you know, the head of the Veterans Administration of the United States, probably, you know, the head of the Pentagon, Lloyd Austin, probably uh, their equivalents in other countries are all aware now of MDMA and its potential to treat PTSD. Safe yes. to say? Yes. And it's, it's safe to go even further that they are both aware and supportive of the research. Like Sir Sir General Nick Carter, the head of the British military, recently uh, retired, he spoke about how this was a very important priority and that there should be more research. And he actually was speaking at a fundraiser at a million dollars was raised for our research in London at King's College. You know, the Israeli military is, is very supportive and they've you know, permitted people that have PTSD from their war service to be in our studies, people who are still on the reserves. Active military or just veterans? Well, it's different in Israel in that once you're in the military, you still have to do um, like reserve duty. Right. For like a significant amount of time until you get, I think, around 40 or so. So Mm -hmm. um, those people were permitted there. So I think that we, we do have not just active awareness, but I think we have goodwill in the sense that these people hope that it works. Well, for example, right now, there's over a million veterans receiving disability payments from the VA for PTSD, and it costs the VA over $17 billion a year in disability payments. 
to these million mm -hmm. people just for their PTSD disabilities. They get you know payments for other disabilities as well. So the scale of the problem is enormous. Now people are thinking it's somewhere like 18 veterans a day committing suicide in the U.S. It's just tragic. And so I yeah. think that we have this cultural moment that's happening, which we call the psychedelic renaissance, that has been building over the last 20 years, but now has really reached a, a further development point, mm -hmm. where I think we can now actually treat the first active duty soldier. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Earlier, you mentioned the Mercers, right? The Mercers, yeah, yeah. famous right-wing philanthropists and political donors in America, strongly backed Trump for a very long time. And you took some flack when you took yes, some support yes. from the Mercers. Uh, and yes. then more recently, I, I saw that, you know, former Governor Rick Perry of Texas yes. and then, you yes. know, in the Trump cabinet, he stepped out there big time on this stuff. So tell us a little bit about that whole thing with the Mercers and then maybe okay. about Rick Perry, the governor. Yeah. So with Rebecca, because she was so associated with Trump and Bannon, a lot of people have demonized her. And, uh, you know, I don't agree with those parts of her, but she was willing to give us a million dollars. The only limitation was that the money go to treat veterans. And, and I said, sure. And I thought it was absolutely essential that we have this bipartisan support. And and that's what I've gotten enormous criticism about from people like, you know, you, you shouldn't work with her. But I had this Passover Seder a couple of years ago here in Boston. And 
there was an elderly couple that was at the second to last seats on a long table. And, and so we sat down next to them. And this uh, group of people were scientists. They were, they were mostly scientists. So I, I went to this guy and I said, um, you know, are, are you a scientist? And he said, no, he was a judge. I said, oh, okay. Um, and then his wife, we started talking, and she's recently uh, written a book about how to help people with their children who are dying of various diseases and the work with grief. And so we got into this really long discussion about MDMA therapy and all that we're doing. And then we started talking about marijuana and the government monopoly on marijuana that we were trying to break. And all it was just a delightful conversation. And somehow, slowly, I started thinking that there was more going on than... Um, meets the eye. And I looked at this guy and, and I said, are, are you by any chance Stephen Breyer, the Supreme Court judge? And he, he smiled and he said, um, yeah, yeah, I am that Stephen Breyer. And I said, oh my God, well, then let me ask you an ethical question if you don't mind. So this is after we've had, as I said, all these discussions about psychedelics and grief and MDMA. So I said, here's my ethical question. I have accepted this million dollar donation from Rebecca Mercer. And I'm getting enormous criticism for doing that. And I think it's absolutely essential it, it's that we must build bipartisan support. And so ethically, you know, what do you think about this? I said, many of our donors are, are more on the progressive side. And, um, you know, what's your opinion of it ethically? He said, the essence of democracy is trying to find common ground with people with whom you may disagree with on every other issue. And that in our hyper-partisan world, there's not enough of that. So he said, you did exactly the right thing to take this money from Rebecca Mercer. Mm-hmm. So I felt, okay, the Supreme Court has said that I did the right uh, uh, thing. But listen, let's just shoot back for a few minutes, back to the old days. Because yes, I'm yeah. remembering, I think maybe you and I met, it might have been 88. And I remember, I think you were responsible for taking me to my first and maybe my second raves. Yes, um, yes, that was it great. It was in, in the early 90s, I think in San Francisco or Oakland yep. or, or nearby yep. Richmond. And mm-hmm. for me, it was a real eye-opener to go to a rave. And I'd done MDMA a number of times before with my wife at the time. But to be in a rave, just to see the atmosphere there, to see the absence of kind of, you know, men not hitting on women in the same way they would if there was alcohol around. Yep. Uh, you know, if, if you wanted to get up close to the stage, you didn't have to elbow your way forward people just let you through. So, I mean, you really helped open my eyes to, in fact, Rick, I'll tell you, you may remember this. (laughs) One of the great moments, we went there with some friends of ours, John Morgan and Lynn Zimmer, who unfortunately are now deceased, but they were great drug researchers. Lynn Lynn Zimmer, one of the great sociologists about this, you know, John Morgan, a professor at the City University of New York Medical School. And we'd gone there. And, you know, most people in the 20s, you and I are, I think, in our late 30s at the time. Lynn and John must have been late 40s or in their 50s. And there's this moment, John's kind of there, he's kind of moving to the music, and some young woman comes up to him and she says to John, are you looking for your child? And he (laughs) goes, no. And she goes, so why are you here? And he goes, I just want to be enjoying myself. And she looks at him and she goes, I want to be just like you when I grow up. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, and it was this beautiful moment in a rave. And then I think back to those days when MDMA was much better known as ecstasy, when it was a mm-hmm. rave scene, when you were just getting going, uh, when the whole thing was seen as a bit flaky at that yeah. time. Yes. I remember some years later, I think you had done some study where they required people to take some spinal fluid, and the result was that some myth went out there that, you know, that, yes. that, that these spinal taps caused, you know, your spines to shrivel up. Back in that day, when I would bring up MDMA among people who didn't know about it, the most common thing I hear was, doesn't it drain your spinal fluid? I mean, it became one of those myths. It was like LSD splits your chromosomes, yeah, right? Or marijuana makes men grow breasts. Um, I mean, it was these things that, you know, you know, might have had one iota of truth to them, but essentially became these broad cultural myths that I think you had a battle against for quite some years. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are still people that think that MDMA causes holes in the brain because over 20 years ago, Oprah broadcast a show about a young woman that had used a lot of ecstasy, used a lot of other drugs, and she had gotten a um, SPECT scan, uh, which is uh, blood flow in the brain, and the SPECT scan supposedly showed holes in her brain. It was a graphically manipulated image. It was totally fake. They just took every area that had um, below a certain amount of blood flow, they showed it as a hole. And it was completely dishonest. And what was even more incongruous was the woman whose brain it was riddled with these holes that you could see in the image that they showed was was on the show and she was walking and talking and she was fine you know Mm -hmm. you'd be dead if you had those kind of holes in your brain but there are people today that still believe that uh, mdma yeah drains spinal fluid or mdma causes holes in your brain and so the neurotoxicity of mdma was something that was used for quite a long time on, through the 90s as well, as an argument to block research. Actually, there was a researcher, Franz Vollenweider in Switzerland, that had done brain scans for the first time with people, PET scans, before and after MDMA, and found no evidence of, quote, holes in the brain or neurotoxicity at all. So then, let me just say, in the 90s, this idea of MDMA and serotonergic neurotoxicity was becoming increasingly discredited. And Time was going by and people were still looking fine. You know, the idea then finally became, oh, it's a time bomb theory that you you have cognitive reserve and you can hurt your serotonin with MDMA and it doesn't show up until you get old. Now, meanwhile, a lot of old people in the 70s and 80s had taken MDMA. They were fine. And then things go along in the 90s and people are not believing this, but NIDA is pretty committed to blocking research into the benefits of illegal drugs at the time. Well, Rick, so I mean that you're you're actually leading into this is a great place to make this transition because there you are at Maps, you're making stuff, but Maps is a still a small organization. You know, you're yeah, up to yeah. five or ten people working for you. You're focused on this little issue. Now, the last five years, Maps, together with the Public Benefit Corporation that you've created, that's owned by the uh, nonprofit organization, yeah. you now got a couple hundred people working for you. You got a budget, I think, in the tens of millions of dollars a year. You are the largest drug policy reform organization in the world right now. You know, you've spent decades out there, you know, making the provocative arguments, and all this sort of stuff, and now you're transitioned into running. You know, I mean, something that's fantastic, incredibly influential. Personally, you're out there like you're. I see. 
you at the conferences now, you're like a rock star there. You're getting interviewed <laughs> over the major media. You know, you're not yeah. doing just the kind of, you know, drug policy podcast like mine, but the Joe Rogans and all the others. But I yeah. have to say for you, what the hell has this transition been like <laughs> for you? I mean, I, I saw you a few years ago. I was being a worry because you're still traveling all over the place. And I'm saying, oh, shit, Rick's burning out. But you're thriving <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, but what has it been like personally for you to go in the last five or 10 years from chugging along, doing your thing to having a mega organization. So the, the thing about maps that has been so delightful is that there's a two pronged strategy. One is drug development. And that's, you know, going through the FDA, trying to make MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD into an FDA approved medicine, also approved in Israel, Canada, Europe, we're working in also Australia, Brazil, and, and elsewhere with humanitarian projects we're trying to start around the world. But the other parallel track has been drug policy reform and really trying to make it so that people can have access to all, all substances without having it to be a criminal situation, pure drugs, honest drug education, harm reduction, treatment on demand. So those two paths have been very satisfying to keep together in parallel. And and what we've said to people too is that if for whatever reason the drug policy reform is bad for the business, you know, if you can buy MDMA for 10 or $20 to, and to do it on your own, but it's sold for a lot more as a medicine covered by insurance, I don't care. I mean, if it's bad for the business model, you know, it's a fundamental human right and we got to get rid of the drug war and help people have these experiences beyond medicine, beyond religion, personal growth, spirituality, couples therapy, all of that. So for me, it's been very challenging. And Chris Lotlicker, who is now the uh, deputy director of MAPS, he started Students for a Sensible Drug Policy. He's helped with a lot of the management of the staff, the goals. Um, so I've become more fundraiser, traveling all over, giving talks, starting new projects. What's been really exciting is because we have had one successful phase three study that we published May 10th, 2021 in Nature Medicine. It was just outstanding, the results of our first phase three study. And in fact, science, and oh, oh, I'm so glad I'm mentioning this. So the journal Science publishes a list of what they consider to be the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the year. And for 2021, they considered our phase three paper published in Nature Medicine as one of the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the year. Wow. And it was wow. just so satisfying to really speak about MDMA and the therapeutic use of MDMA as one of the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the year. And, you know, there's over, uh, we've guessed around 400 for-profit psychedelic companies with the market crash. There may be less now, but, you know, we're, we're the leading one and we're the only one in phase three. And so because we are looking like there's a very good chance that we will eventually succeed, we, the second phase three study, we had the interim analysis in May and the results were um, very good. We're, we've got over 90% probability of statistical significance. The safety data was good. The final data point will be in October. But because it, it looks pretty good, but I don't know that much about commercialization. And, and our team really didn't know that much about what happens once you succeed? It's like, you know, the dog that catches the car, you know, what do you do now? So we managed to hire a fantastic person, Mike Millette, who was the number two person for commercialization at Moderna. 
And mm-hmm. they sold, you know, billions of dollars of the vaccine for COVID all over the world. And so he's now taken a good uh, new challenge. His wife is a therapist. So we have been building the, the Benefit Corporation, which, as you said before, is 100% owned by the nonprofit. And just um, so our listeners understand, it is something that's allowed within the American tax code where a nonprofit can own a for-profit corporation where all the profits from the for-profit corporation go back to the nonprofit to be spent as the executive director and the board see fit. But I think for you, it re- opens up the possibility that when the FDA ultimately approves MDMA for the treatment of PTSD and then presumably for other medical conditions as well, your yeah. public benefit corporation could then land up earning what hundreds of millions of dollars it's, in the it's coming possible. years possible yeah it's very possible so it will depend on the number of therapists we train the price of mdma and the willingness of insurance companies and the va to adopt it and cover the costs which we mm-hmm. think are are looking pretty good and so one of the things that i'm um really proud of is that we've added carl hart to the board of directors of maps now, and I think our listeners will know Carl Hart is a professor of psychology and of neuroscience at Columbia, who was a previous guest on Psychoactive and who has written two very important books about, about drugs and about race and about freedom. And uh, so, yes, his joining MAPS board is quite a coup, Rick. Yeah. And several people said, uh, don't add him because oh, he's so controversial, you know, because he's not just talking about psychedelics. He's talking about other drugs, opiates and heroin. And saying things like, I don't understand how anybody could share the psychology department at Columbia if they weren't using heroin on a regular basis, which I thought was a really <laughs> choice quote on his part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's phenomenal. And I said, well, it's because of his principled stand and the controversy, that's, that's why we want him on the board of directors of MAPS. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, but this I'm really means trying- you got attention, obviously, within your organization between yes, those yes. people who are driven by a broader commitment to psychedelics reform and even broader drug policy reform on the one hand, and the others who are sort of micro focused on ensuring the business side uh, succeeds as much as possible, right? And who want to kind of keep yes. their heads down on the broader sets of issues. Yes. And, you know, as we hire more and more people from pharma who don't have necessarily a psychedelic background, they have, you know, more, I would say, conservative instincts. And, you know, they come from a more highly regulated environment. You know, pharmaceutical companies have to be really careful about what they say and do, particularly in the era of not speaking about unapproved uses, you know, or off-label uses, our, our safety lies in just not going beyond the data. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's nothing I've said during this discussion that's of any concern. Well, so I mean, maybe you can't can answer this question, but presumably MDMA is going to be useful for treating all sorts of other conditions, whether it's oh, anorexia yeah. I, I, or a range of others. You can talk openly about that stuff, right? Well, yes, I can say that these are hopes, not certainties, and that mm-hmm. the right now, the data that we have from one phase three study is not sufficient to say that we have proved that MDMA is safe and efficacious. We have suggested that it's likely from this one phase three study, but we need a second phase three study that's also statistically significant and has an acceptable safety ratio. And then until FDA approves prescription use, we cannot say that we've proven safety and efficacy, even though we think that we may have. It's still 
It's right. the FDA approvals. Once, once it's approved, by the way, for, for PTSD, it can then, doctors will then be allowed to use it for all sorts of other medical conditions. The FDA doesn't need to step in and approve it for each condition, right? Right. Pharmaceutical companies cannot knowingly promote or sell for off-label uses. But the practice of medicine is such as that prescribers can prescribe both for what the labeled indication is and for anything else that they think is appropriate. There have been several cases that have gone through the U.S. courts where the FDA has tried to make it so that pharma companies could not even mention off-label uses. But now, if there is a scientific study that we can share that with prescribers, even if it's a phase two study, meaning a a smaller pilot study. So we've done studies with MDMA-assisted therapy for social anxiety in autistic adults. It was tremendously successful. We did a study with people with anxiety because of life-threatening illnesses. The results were promising. Ben Sessa, a psychiatrist in England, has done a study, a small study, looking at MDMA for alcohol use disorder. And what he learned was that people who are suffering from unresolved trauma often go to drugs and alcohol to, to cover it up so that they don't need to think about their trauma. And if you can help them address the trauma, then you can make them make a lot of progress with their alcohol use disorder or other substance use disorders. We're, we're thinking about doing studies with postpartum depression, with depression. So far, the studies with PTSD, most people with PTSD have depression, but we have not yet done a study of uh, MDMA-assisted therapy for depression um, without PTSD. And Rick, I just, let me ask you this. I mean, obviously, you cannot get a patent on MDMA because it was invented right. almost 100 years ago, and then Sasha Shulgin kind of rediscovered its therapeutic uses. But so how do you stand to make money? Is it from the selling of MDMA? Is it from the uh, training of the therapists or from setting up of clinics where MDMA will be administered in a psychotherapeutic context? Well, where does okay. the money factor come yeah. in? Yeah. So when we think about this idea of public benefit, the public benefit for us is helping people get over PTSD, you know, to to reduce their symptoms, to be able to rejoin life in in a better way. So the training of therapists could be a moneymaker. And in fact, we've brought in several millions of dollars in fees, but so far they mostly just cover our costs for the team and developing our training materials and stuff. But we felt that the training of therapists is not a a profit center. And in fact, what we want ideally is for schools of psychiatry and psychotherapy to incorporate and embed in their core curriculums modules about training people for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, for psilocybin, for depression, for ketamine, so that we want this to be mainstreamed. And so We are also licensing other programs to provide MDMA training for MDMA therapists as long as they have the core competencies and the core elements of our training program in them. So we don't see the training as being a necessary profit center. Clinics are a potential profit center, but there, there are some problems of which I'm not fully aware of legally, but you know, pharmaceutical companies owning clinics where their own drugs are prescribed. But the clinics of the future, the psychedelic psychotherapy clinics of the future, there's not going to be a ketamine clinic here, a psilocybin clinic there, an MDMA clinic there. There's going to be therapists that are ideally cross-trained in all the different psychedelics. 
and the clinics will provide customized, individualized, personalized psychedelic psychotherapy. And the patient will come in and they'll have discussions with their therapist and they'll say, all right, we'll, we'll start with this drug or that drug and then we'll move to this. And so the clinics will be generalized psychedelic psychotherapy clinics. Now, interestingly, when I started MAPS in 1986, I knew, as you said, that Merck Pharmaceutical Company, the German Merck, had invented MDMA in 1912. And it's in the public domain, and there is, uh, you know, no way to patent it, nor would we ever want to patent it, because we want to facilitate MDMA research. In the 80s, when I started MAPS in 1986, there was another group founded by a fellow named Howard Lotsoff, who had discovered that Ibogaine, another psychedelic drug, was tremendously helpful, uniquely helpful, for helping people get through opiate addiction, or opiate dependence, what I mean is that in a couple days under the influence of Ibogaine, you could get over your tolerance, get over dependence on opiates, and you can have a psychotherapeutic, psychedelic process. You can work on a bunch of the issues. And then with enough aftercare and integration and support that a lot of people could start a new direction in their life free from opiates. So he was worried that there was no way to do this in a nonprofit way. So he started a for-profit company called NDA International, New Drug Application, uh, NDA International. And as it turned out, several of the early researchers started uh, suing each other for intellectual property, for patents, for use patents. I began for opiate addiction and other dependencies. In any case, I saw these lawsuits about IP really be very, very destructive for the entire field. And that has basically blocked I began development. Now those core patents have expired. But I hired their same patent attorney, and I said, I would like you to help us develop an anti-patent strategy for use patents so that nobody, not MAPS, nobody could patent MDMA for any of the things that had been used before, PTSD or any number of things. So prior art. So we, we tell stories on our website. People tell stories of MDMA useful for this or that, and then nobody can claim to have invented that idea. So... When I started MAPS in 86, I had thought that MDMA would go generic and there would be no money-making opportunities. It would be a low-cost drug, but it was worth doing. It was essentially worth doing anyway. And there was this moment in 2014, my, my wife was um, head of the uh, Belmont Foundation for Education, and they were having a gala, and uh, I was going to the gala, and I thought, you know, she's in charge of this, there's all good food, I'm just going to get super stoned, and I'm just going to eat. I'm, I'm off work. And so while I was there, I ran across a patent attorney who I knew from Belmont who had helped patent Bromo LSD. And what he said was that there was this policy that I had overlooked. I took a class in food and drug regulation at Harvard Law School, and it wasn't even mentioned. And what it's called is data exclusivity. So we have thanks to give to Ronald Reagan for this. So in 1984, Ronald Reagan signed a law to provide incentives for developing drugs that were off patent. And the incentive is called data exclusivity. And so what it means is that if you are the first to make a drug into a medicine that has never been made into a medicine before, and it's completely not patentable, that you have exclusive use of your data for five years. And if you do pediatric studies, which the FDA is actually requiring us to do, if we succeed MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD in adults, which is 18 years or over, we must do studies in 12 to 17-year-olds, and you get six months more data exclusivity. And data exclusivity blocks a generic competitor 
from having the FDA evaluate their application until the five and a half years is over. And it takes a minimum of eight months and potentially longer for the FDA to evaluate a generic manufacturer's license to make sure that it's really pure and stable, their drug. So we will have this period in excess of six years of data exclusivity. And then later, England, I mean, the European Medicines Agency made um, a similar data exclusivity law, but it's 10 years data exclusivity in Europe. So the beauty of data exclusivity from our point of view is that the fundamental difference from it and a patent is that other companies can develop their own data. We're not stopping anybody from doing anything. And so if another company gets uh, their own data, they could get permission from FDA to market MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD just as we could. But we have such a, a lead, and it's so expensive that we don't think there's going to be any competition. We think that the competitors, what they are going to do, and we even don't really call them competitors. We call them you know, um, collaborators in, in this larger mission of mass mental health and spiritualized humanity. So we will have this period of data exclusivity, and that's where the money-making comes in, that, that we will be the only ones to be able to market MDMA. The other beauty of data exclusivity is that we don't have to have non-disclosure agreements. We don't have to keep the data private or proprietary. We just make everything public because we own the data from submitting it to the FDA because we were the sponsor. And we then get the data exclusivity automatically. It's not even a question. It's an automatic opportunity to choose uh, data exclusivity. So I see. So you can be quite transparent with everything you're doing. And then meanwhile, once it gets approved, the revenue for MDMA, or the Public Benefit Corporation, immediately will come mostly from the selling of MDMA and only in a small way from creating clinics or things like that. Yeah, or, or maybe not at all from creating clinics. We, we are thinking that we might want to have some um, centers of excellence, some clinics with, you know, large numbers of therapists, you know, expertly trained, and they'll become sort of research training and treatment centers. We have to work out all the compliance issues to see whether that's possible. But right. the, the main funds are going to come through the um, selling of MDMA as a uh, prescription medicine. It's pretty relatively inexpensive to make pharmaceutical mm -hmm. medicines, most of them. And then the value or what you charge is based on the value to the offset, the medical expenses, to the improved healthcare, to the society, to the individual, to the you know, people now who didn't work. Rick, obviously, for all the tens of millions of people who are using MDMA outside the yeah. ther therapeutic context, I mean, the way that you and I have in the past and so many yeah. others, and where there's always the problems of adulteration. I mean, just recently, there were a couple of reports, I think, out of LA of fentanyl getting mixed in with yes, what people yes. thought was MDMA, and people yes. died as a result of that. And I remember even like, you know, when MDMA became known as ecstasy, and at some point, ecstasy developed a bad name because yes. it was known as adulterated. Um, MDMA. And then, in fact, people come up with Molly as if somehow Molly is now the pure MDMA, although I think yes, it was just yes. a relabeling of, a, of essentially an illicitly produced black market drug of unknown potency and purity. But what yeah. I'm wondering is, is this process that MAPS is engaged in, what are going to be the spillover implications for the broader, you know, tens of millions of people who are still presumably getting their MDMA off the black market and having to deal with issues of, you know, potency and purity apart from their ability to access some forms of a, uh, you know, drug quality testing. Will there be any well, implications, you think, There, there will be. There will be, because I think what we've seen from medical marijuana is that 
medicalization changes people's attitudes. They've been fed propaganda for 50 years, you know, as we talked about some of the dangers of, of marijuana. Marijuana does have dangers. MDMA does have dangers. But the propaganda has vastly exaggerated them. And the story is that these drugs tend to be all risks and no benefits. And I think that's why the prohibitionists have so fought research into medical marijuana or research into psychedelics, because then you start telling a more nuanced picture. And under certain contexts, the benefits outweigh the risks. So what we've seen with medical marijuana is that as more states have endorsed medical marijuana, the support for marijuana legalization for non-medical, celebratory, recreational, adult use, however you want to call it, has grown. And so I think we are now at this point in America where one hopes that maybe 2025 will have a law that will pass through Congress signed by the president that takes away the prohibition of marijuana federally and leaves it to the states the way things happened mm -hmm. with alcohol. So I think that we are going to see something similar happening with psychedelics that the more we move forward with medicalization, and the, even though we're talking about this as only trained therapists will be able to administer it to patients, only under direct supervision, MDMA will never be a take-home drug, but people will start to understand that there are tremendous therapeutic potentials for this, but also a lot of potential benefits outside of medicine or outside of religion. So I think that what we're already seeing is decrim efforts Four psychedelics that are taking place started in Denver, actually, which was the first city to make mushrooms the lowest enforcement priority. Then that went to Oakland, and they, they expanded it to plant psychedelics, and then Ann Arbor, and, and all sorts of other cities have now done that. And then the state of Oregon has passed at a, as an initiative, the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative, which is setting up a state legal system of trained guides who may or may not be licensed to do therapy that can give psilocybin to a range of people, some of them who have clinical conditions, but others who just want it for personal growth. And there's going to be something similar on the ballot in Colorado, but it's going to be beyond just psilocybin. It will again do plant psychedelics. Now I should say that there's this, not MDMA, no, no there, there's this romantic notion that that is proven true for the voters that if you say natural medicine or you say plant-based medicines or it's from nature, you get a lot more support than if you say, oh, and, and there's also some good ones from the laboratory that are synthetic like LSD and MDMA. So the initiatives and the legalization efforts have so far left out uh, MDMA and LSD, which are you know laboratory-based. They, they are you know, semi-synthetic. Those molecules do not appear in nature, but there's molecules that are somewhat similar that then you mm -hmm. modify. So I think that what we will see, what I'm basically suggesting is that if MDMA becomes commercially available as a medicine in 2024, what we need is a decade of the rollout of psychedelic clinics. And I think what we're going to see is six or 7,000 psychedelic clinics in the course of that decade, we're hoping to train at least 25,000 therapists and that there will be these clinics all over America. And the reason I use that number just to show where it comes from is that there's over 6,000 hospice centers. So if you think where people go to have a different approach towards death, and I think every town that's big enough to have a hospice center 
is big enough to have a psychedelic treatment center. So I think we'll have six or 7,000 of these psychedelic treatment centers. And the FDA and regulators respond to data, but people respond to stories. That's why this Netflix documentary is gonna be so important. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, of all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. You're hitting on a lot of issues here. I mean, what I'm thinking is I think you're making some very interesting analogies, both with marijuana and with the broader psychedelics and plant medicine thing. The way I look at it is what you're saying about medical marijuana is exactly right. And it was part of our long-term strategy, right? That by normalizing and legalizing marijuana for medical purposes, it would have a spillover effect in terms of public consciousness around the relative safety and benefits of marijuana. And looking in retrospect, it turned out that our strategic thinking around that back to the mid-90s turned out to be accurate. Now, the difference, of course, is that when you're buying marijuana that's been approved and has state oversight bodies making sure it's you know safe, that the marijuana being produced illegally is not that much different. I mean, it's got some mm-hmm. pesticides yes. in this and that, but the risks of adulterated marijuana are, are really pretty de minimis. And even these reports about fentanyl getting mixed in with marijuana appear to be either 99 or 100 percent bullshit. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you had the spillover in terms of the broader public consciousness, but the issues of an adulterated market were not that significant. When you look at the plant medicine stuff and you hear some of the people in the plant medicine coalitions who are a little freaked out with all of the kind of medicalization, psychotherapeutization of psilocybin, of mushrooms, of all these things, and they worry. But my sense is what you're saying is exactly right. 
is going to increase people's comfort around thinking about these substances and using them, that the issues of adulteration, especially when it's, you're talking about mushrooms or things like that, or uh, mescaline when it comes mm -hmm. from peyote or San Pedro, are not that significant. But when it comes to MDMA, you are talking about stuff, a white powder drug that's being mm -hmm. produced illegally around the world, where issues of potency and purity are real. You know, when we look back at the history of the dozens or hundreds of people who have died from using, quote unquote, ecstasy over the years, it does appear that a substantial proportion of those was because the substances they were using were adulterated in some way. And that's where I'm wondering, you know, as you succeed with getting MDMA approved, hopefully by 2024, mm -hmm. you know, will there be some spillover in terms of the safety of of MDMA? I mean, because, you know, paradoxically, yeah. probably the safest thing that could happen from a public health perspective would be for legally produced MDMA to be de facto diverted to illicit markets. But from a political and regulatory happen. perspective, that would be the worst possible thing that would yeah, happen. Yeah, that would bring down happen. everything you've been trying to fight for. Yeah, so yeah. what, I mean, apart from the public consciousness shifting in the positive way you talk about, what about the market itself? Yeah. Okay. Let me just correct one thing, which is that people can die from pure MDMA. And mm -hmm. what's happened in raves is that sometimes with, even with pure MDMA, what people do is they dance all night or they overheat and they don't have adequate fluid. A lot of these uh, bars have, have seen that once people are on MDMA, they don't buy as much alcohol. And so they have charged for water. Some egregiously have even turned off uh, faucets in the bathroom. So you have to buy water. Um, so people can die from what's called hyperthermia, from um, overheating. It does not happen in uh, clinical research ever, never, never, because there's adequate fluid replacement and people aren't dancing all night. And so also sometimes if people have heard the harm reduction message, yeah, drink fluids. And so people will drink too much water and they die from what's called hyponitremia, from thinning their blood too much. And so the best harm reduction message there is that um, drink stuff with electrolytes, fruit juices or other things. Water is not the best. But to answer your question directly, here's the beauty of our situation. MDMA has been used by tens and tens and tens of millions of people over the last you know, 40 years. So the one in a million or one in two million side effects have come to the surface because when the FDA evaluates a drug, usually it's been studied in only hundreds or thousands of people. And so when you put it out on the market and a million people take it, then you start discovering more side effects. But we have this enormous body of information over more than 40 years about MDMA being used in the most risky of circumstances, often adulterated. And there's over 5,000 papers, scientific papers on MDMA or ecstasy. So if anybody really wants to look at what are the risks of MDMA from the scientific literature, um, the investigator's brochure and our reports, our safety reports to the FDA, which are also up on our website, are a really good resource. Also, we have what's called the treatment manual, which describes our therapeutic approach. So if people want to understand the therapy that's used with the MDMA, they should read the treatment manual. So I, I think that this idea of as MDMA becomes medicalized and more and more people will hear stories about healing, they will, of course, know that those stories are about pure MDMA. We have trained uh, therapists and others that help support people when they have difficult emotional experiences. 
And that's a really important part of psychedelic harm reduction. A lot of people still do not understand that MDMA was a therapy drug before it was a party drug ecstasy. And a lot of people approach these experiences as just, I'm going to take it, it's a party, I'm going to have fun. And when difficult material comes up, if they have memories of, of difficult emotional situations, too many times people think, oh, my experience is going bad. This is turning into a bad trip. Let me suppress these bad thoughts and bad feelings. And then they can't really do that. And then if they don't pay attention to that, now it's sort of moved up from the unconscious, it's more conscious, they get to end up worse off for, for months or years later. So I think the more that the idea that these substances, when combined with therapy, have tremendous therapeutic potential for people with post-traumatic stress disorder and other major mental illnesses, that the recreational market, people will have more of an idea of what to do when difficult material comes into their awareness. Instead of trying to suppress it, hopefully they will open up to it, talk to their friends around them, create a safe space, you know, and try to go through and let out those feelings and let out and express those emotions rather than suppress them. So I think that there'll be fewer people caught unaware by difficult material mm -hmm. when they take these drugs for parties than there are now, because still it's not as widespread as we'd like the idea that these can have tremendous therapeutic right. potential. But, but I think the other big part of harm reduction is called drug checking. So the world's best example of psychedelic harm reduction at a festival is the Boom Festival in Portugal. And so we, we started the psychedelic harm reduction efforts at Boom in 2002, and we started working at Burning Man in 2003. But because Portugal has decriminalized drugs, you know, it was a right. tremendous... They, they decriminalized possession for one's own use. Yeah. They did not decriminalize the transfer, sale, or things like that. Yeah. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just a tremendous success. So at uh, Boom, they have thin layer chromatography on site to identify what really is in these illicit drugs before you take them. And so it would be really important over time, particularly with fentanyl being used now to adulterate a lot of different drugs, to have drug checking to be accepted as a standard part of harm reduction. And when you look at the number of people that have died of opiate-related overdoses, over 100,000, I think it was 107 or something, 1,000 in America in one year, a lot of that is adulterated with fentanyl. So we really need drug checking until we get to the point of having full legalization where even the drugs that are sold for non-medical purposes are pure and people could rely on their purity. Yeah, and I think, of course, with this overdose crisis, the, the acceptance by the public and even by law enforcement of fentanyl testing strips has grown very substantially, and that will spill over, obviously, to things like testing psychedelics and MDMA and such. Rick, I mean, also, I, mean, I need to bring this issue up. Obviously, that even in the psychotherapeutic regulated context, there are risks. And I think yeah. you and your oh, colleagues yeah. have had to deal with this, right? There was the issue of, of some of the therapists who were associated with the MDMA uh, studies, um, you know, getting accused of sexually inappropriate behavior, right? I think New York Magazine did a big expose on this stuff, and you're having to deal with this stuff. And I know MAPS is, you know, obviously takes all sorts of precautions. So what more can you, can you, I mean, I know you may be limited by lawyers and 
this and that from what you can say, but what can you tell people to reassure them when they're reading these reports about there being forms of uh, you know, uh, unethical behavior by psychotherapists? And we're not just talking about shamans down in the jungles in South America. We're talking about in the US and in Canada, you know, trained psychotherapists doing things that uh, are inappropriate. Yeah, I think it was a, a, a real tragedy that it happened. You know, we're very sad for the person that it happened to. And we have instituted a fair number of measures, we think, going forward, particularly as we move into post-approval use, if we get that far, to try to minimize that. So what we are aware of, that this has only happened one time, out of over about 360 patients. Uh, it may have happened more, but we're not aware of it. And we think with all of the media attention about it that, that you know, we encourage if it did happen to anybody else that they should um, come forward. The unethical sexual misconduct began after the therapy was over uh, in that one particular case. We immediately fired those people. They're not working with us. We informed all of the therapists how serious of a transgression this was, that anybody else, of course, would get fired if that happened. We put out a public statement. We even changed our informed consent form and added a sentence about how beware if you are a patient and start developing feelings, you know, sexual feelings for the therapist. I think going forward, you know, we, we have really made even more prominent in our uh, training about ethical behavior. We have a code of ethics and we're talking about having a patient bill of rights that would be given to all the patients in research, but also now post-approval, mostly post-approval. I don't think we have it quite ready yet, but this idea of this patient bill of rights, which makes it very clear where to complain to if there's anything that is happening that feels inappropriate. Either, Rick, did you know, all of this happening? I mean, the stuff in the news, did it freak out the FDA at all or slow the process of proceeding with the um, approval? Well, this happened um, around five years ago. We did report it to the FDA, to Health Canada, to all the regulatory agencies as soon as we heard about it. I don't think that it did freak them out. Again, the FDA is, they don't regulate psychotherapy. You know, they, they regulate drugs. And so this is kind of a conundrum for them about, you know, how to do this, where the treatment is primarily psychotherapy but it involves a drug, in this case, MDMA, or in other cases, psilocybin or ketamine, you know, to make the therapy more effective. Although I should say the ketamine was approved without psychotherapy, S-ketamine. So I think that um, what we are seeing is that this is a problem that goes beyond psychedelic psychotherapy to psychiatry and psychotherapy itself, and all sorts of other kind of situations where there's a lot of you know, close contact between people. So I think that what we are needing to do is when, when you think about a drug and from the point of view of the FDA, you look at, you balance the risks and benefits. And so, yeah, this is one of the risks. We don't think it's common. As I said, we only are aware of it happening one time in mm -hmm. the, um, you know, roughly uh, 20 years since we started doing this kind of work. 
Well, well, Rick, let, let me ask you this thing. Part of the MDMA protocol involves always having a male and female uh, therapist. Mm -hmm. And you've made the point that in good part for cost and accessibility, that it should be sufficient if just one of them is a licensed therapist. Yes, yes, right? yes. In this case, the, the scandal that resulted was one, the other therapist, or the fellow, was somebody who had let his license lapse and therefore could not be held accountable by an oversight board in the same way that the licensed therapist could. So, I mean, wh where are you on that issue now? I mean, do you, yeah. is there ways of ensuring that people who are not licensed by, a, you know, a psychologist board of some sort, a psychotherapist board of some sort mm -hmm. can still be held accountable? Or yeah. do you well, still first, adhere to the issue that let's keep it the way it is for issues of cost and accessibility? Well, I, I do believe that we should try to keep with a two-person team for individual therapy. I do believe that the second person should not be required to have a license. The person that does have the license is held responsible. And so right now, the um, female therapist who did have a license is having challenges with her licensing board. Mm -hmm. So there, there are people that are held responsible. I think that it's probably less likely to happen in uh, two-person teams and even less likely in group therapy. Even though, again, this um, unethical sexual misconduct came sexual after the therapy was over, when the cameras were off, and, and, and you know, after that was all done. So the major ethical issue wasn't what happened in the moments of therapy, which one can see on a, you know, it's all videotaped. The real issue was about one of the therapists getting involved sexually with the patient in subsequent period of time. Yes, I would say that. The, the other part, the essence of our method, which, again, I don't think was followed by this therapist team fully, is this idea that there's this inner healing intelligence, sort of what comes up has a certain wisdom to it when people are under the influence, but that fundamentally what we're doing is helping people heal themselves. So in traditional psychiatry, when you think about Freud and uh, Freudian analysis, you know, you got the therapist that's listening, the person is on the couch, and then the therapist every once in a while will give an interpretation. The therapist is the healer, and they find what's going on in the person's unconscious during this free association process. But our approach is really designed to empower the patient to heal themselves. So I think there's a certain aspect of that theoretical orientation that empowers the patient and it doesn't make the therapist into the source of all the healing or the drug either. Um, so I think it, it is an issue is how do we create safe spaces and how do we do that once this um, you know, moves outside of a, a research context. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think there's any perfect solution. I mean, I'm thinking about this case also, it was dealing with a patient whose traumas involved, you know, sexual abuse as a child and rape. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering if it's particularly challenging when the PTSD you're trying to deal with has a sexual component to it. I think it can be, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's where it's even more important that we have this um, safe space. And now, not all of our teams are male-female. We've actually had some all-female teams. I'm not aware if we've had two male teams, but that might have been the case. But I, I, I do think that it's very delicate when people have been traumatized that they don't get re-traumatized by the therapy. Now, some of the existing therapies, prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, where they involve people talking about their traumas, it's very difficult for people because these traumas are, are so emotionally powerful mm -hmm. and, and painful 
that often people drop out of those therapies. So that, that's not the same kind of re-traumatization that we're talking about by um, unethical uh, sexual contact. But, mm-hmm. um, but the, you know, the MDMA can help people deal with emotions that would otherwise be overwhelming. So I think that there is this concern that, that uh, you know, a valid concern that we should try to minimize to, to zero going forward any of these situations in the future. And so we are doing our best uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. A different subject here. I mean, you've been so enormously successful at raising money uh, for this work, especially <laughs> yeah. in recent years, and a lot of it's been from very wealthy individuals. Um, and and but I know you know one thing I ran into in my last years of raising money for the marijuana reform, marijuana legalization ballot initiatives was that as the industry started growing up, uh, the wealthy philanthropists started to say, you know, I'm less interested. So many people are making money from this. Why don't you go to those guys? You know the Overwhelmingly, the vast majority of the funding from 1996 to 2016 had come from people who were philanthropically interested in this, not mm-hmm. from people yeah. who were interested in a self-interested for-profit way. Now, you've obviously gone through a similar transition. It was overwhelmingly, you know, philanthropic money mm-hmm. you were raising. But in recent years, with the for-profit side and having companies like Atai or Compass that have multi-billion-dollar valuations uh, and other ones that are, you know, very well financed, you must be running into the same thing where the philanthropists are saying, you know, go to the money guys now. We're not in for the money. They are. Is that what's happening and how are you dealing with it? Well, that's a great question, Ethan. So in, in MAPS's history, we've raised over about 135 or $140 million in grants, uh, mostly donations and, and a few grants. And we've reached this point where we needed a substantial amount of money in a short time to really prepare for commercialization. And so we did develop a new approach, which we're calling regenerative financing. And it's through a a group called Vine Ventures. And it's our first effort to actually reach out to investors. But it's different than your traditional kind of venture capital where you try to get 10x returns. So it's for mission-aligned investors where what we promise to do is share revenue, a percentage of the revenue. So we have created this Vine Ventures deal to raise $70 million, and it's for 6.1% of North American revenue for eight years after commercialization. There's a waterfall uh, situation, meaning that as we return more and more to them, they get a lower and lower percentage. So we, we think it's most likely to be 2x or 3x, uh, but not beyond that. And then after this eight-year period, it just completely disappears. And because it's about a share of the revenue, and this is, I think, a really crucial point, there's no ownership, there's no control, there's no board of directors seats. And on top of it, they don't care if we use a lot of the revenue for patient assistance programs or for drug policy reform or for other things that might not bring them back more money. So that it's about a revenue share. And we're probably around 55 million or so of the 70 million so far raised. Um, There's a fair number of the donors that didn't want to be involved because they didn't want to switch from donors to investors. And so my hope is that once we complete this $70 million raise, which we think will happen in the next month or so, 
that we are going to need still a substantial amount of money. You know, as you succeed, your uh, ambitions increase. So as I said, we're wanting to globalize the patient access to MDMA. We're wanting to do all sorts of humanitarian projects. And so we're going to need a fair amount of, of money to, to do the research in Europe, to really do the commercialization in the U.S. There will be a point where we hit what we're calling a sustainability point. And that's where the income from the sale of MDMA, the profit from the sale of MDMA covers all of the costs and then starts generating more money for more research, for more uh, drug development, and also for moving some money to the nonprofit for uh, drug policy reform and also for you know, patient assistance programs. Patient assistance programs are particularly difficult in our situation because when you see a ad on TV for a pharmaceutical drug and it says, if you can't afford the drug, you know, talk to us, we can give it to you for free or at low cost. Um, for us, if we give people MDMA for free, it doesn't do them any good unless they can afford the therapy. Mm-hmm. And the therapy could be $10,000. So how do we really provide patient assistance and equitable access to people that can't otherwise afford it? For a, a, a large number of people, we're going to need to give them the MDMA for free, but also pay their therapists. Well, and, yeah, I mean, is it the hope that health insurance will start to cover this stuff? Well, they will, but we've got one third of um, you know people in America, a well, quarter to one third don't even have insurance. Mm-hmm. And, and often mm-hmm. they have underinsured. So I, I think my hope is that after we have completed the $70 million, I would like to do the rest with philanthropy to go back to the philanthropic model. And to instead of saying, here, if you invest, this is what we can return to you, to really go back to the story is, here, if you donate, here's the change that we can make in the world. And even though mm-hmm. it will end up generating resources that we will be using for more research, humanitarian projects, patient assistance funds, drug policy forum, wouldn't you rather have us use the resources for that instead of giving back to investors. So I think the Vine Ventures deal came at a crucial time. It's a courageous and novel way of raising funds with this you know, royalty financing. So Rick, I got to tell you, I could just keep going here. Yes. I, I've loved having this conversation. And meanwhile, I'm sitting in a closet with no air conditioning. But this, I've loved catching up with you, you know, and having our conversation get recorded for psychoactive listeners. So what you've done, your focus, your commitment, your obsessiveness, your uh, <laughs> ethical values, uh, it really is extraordinary, Rick. So, you know, uh, God bless with all this stuff. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you very much. That's very sweet. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe.
Next week, I'll be talking with perhaps the most famous tobacco company executive in the world. His name is Andre Kalanzopoulos. He is currently the chairman of the board of Philip Morris International, before that the chief executive officer. And he's been a leader within the tobacco industry in making the transition from cigarettes to non-smokable nicotine alternatives. I said many times also to investors, the margin we make on these products, the smoke-free products, is better than cigarettes. So we don't only have a moral incentive, we have a financial incentive to sell these products, and they're better because we convinced regulators around the world to give us better tax treatment than on cigarettes. And they understand that if you have a better product, you need to incentivize both manufacturers and consumers to switch to this product. Okay, so I think it makes sense to us not to sell cigarettes. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it gonna like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 